Good morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. How many, um, Christmas isn't even here yet and you're already wore out. Anybody wore out? You're tired? Okay, okay. Good. I'm glad you're here today. Um, who's going to win that game tonight? How many didn't even know there was a game tonight? How many didn't even know there's? okay, okay. Uh, any Seattle Seahawks fans in the house? Oh, oh, look at this. We've got a whole row back here. There's a, there's a few back here. You guys need to know we have a traitor on staff. And if the Seattle Seahawks win tonight, we're going to have to fire him. Anybody know who he is? Oh, you guys do. You know why? Because he's been going through the hallways here boasting about how good Seattle is. And yeah, they are pretty good. But uh, Cardinal fans, I don't know, we have a, a tough one ahead of us, so we'll see how it goes. But you know what, we've got something so much more important than all of that. And that's our Bible study right here this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter two. We'll be looking at verses eight through 14. This is our Vintage Jesus teaching series that Jesus most people miss. Question we're answering this morning, why is he a superior savior? No one is more loved or hated than Jesus Christ, yet those who dare to look beyond the prejudices, the biases, and encounter the historical, biblical, vintage Jesus are never, ever the same. But what if you claim to have had an encounter with Christ with very little life change? What, what's going on if that is true, if I've, I'm... I've encountered Jesus, I'm walking with him, and yet I haven't really experienced the life change that you talk about people experiencing. In other words, over time, you've encountered Christ, and you say that you're walking with him, and over time, you continue to be defeated by hurts, habits, and hang-ups. What's going on with that? I happen to believe that this is the scandal of the American church the reason the church has very little impact on the culture around us is because we are, we are too much like the culture around us. We, we really aren't experiencing the life change that, uh, that the Bible talks about us experiencing. And in fact, let me just say this, that life change, the life change we're talking about here, life change doesn't happen simply by trying harder to live according to biblical principles. I did that for years and it didn't work. It's taken me decades to really learn what I'm going to share with you this morning, and it's really what Desert Breeze is all about. But you can try harder all you want to try to live by biblical principles, and it probably won't bring, the, bring you the change that the Bible actually, actually talks about. But this is how I begin to experience even greater life change, and that was by confronting the pseudo-saviors that had held my heart hostage, and I began to confront those pseudo-saviors with the gospel of Jesus Christ and learned really how to do that. You see, it's important to understand that Jesus may be our savior in principle, but in practice, pseudo-saviors, money and marriage and job and health and comfort and the list goes on, can still control our heart's deepest affections. We've got some work to do this morning. This is a wonderful study. It's a great time to, to study about our Savior. Why is he a superior Savior? You can see on the notes where we're headed. Everyone has a Savior, 
And then the pseudo-saviors are, and I'll give you two characteristics that are true about pseudo-saviors, and then I'll talk about our wonderful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only Savior of that, and I'll talk about two characteristics there. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray, and then we will dive into our text and unpack these notes. <clears throat> Father God, though, though your Son may be our Savior in principle for, for many of us, but in practice too often pseudo-saviors Money and marriage and family, career, health, pleasure, any number of things compete and win our heart's deepest affections. We admit that we are prone to wonder from you, the God we love, the God that loves us. But we're so thankful and we celebrate this season that Christmas is, is the Savior coming not with a sword in his hand bringing judgment, but to have nails driven into his hands to bear our judgment. So we pray through the study of your word and the work of your Holy Spirit to stir up our affections for Christ our Savior and may we enjoy a sense, a sense of his love on our hearts that ruins us for anything else. Teach us how to confront the pseudo-saviors that hold our hearts hostage with the life-liberating and soul-satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ for your glory in Jesus' name and everyone said... Amen. Take a look at this text. Wonderful text. This is part of the Christmas story, Luke chapter 2. We'll just take a section of it, verses 8 through 14. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory, the word glory is weight, significance, importance. It creates this sense of wow when we understand the glory of God. There's this wow in our lives, the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with fear. That would be the obvious normal response, fear. And the angel said to them, and I love this, fear not. Now, what I'm about to read here is that you will not fear anything to the degree that you understand what they're going to say. They said, fear not. We have fear and anxiety and worry in direct proportion to the fact that we don't understand the next part of this verse. Fear not, for behold. The word behold actually means more than just uh, something that is clear to the mind. It's real to the heart, so that you begin to behold who Christ is and what he's done for you, that it goes from head to heart, and uh, it becomes an experience that gives you what you need to be able to face anything. And so he says, fear not, for behold, I bring you, what's that, the next two words? I bring you good news. I bring you good news. No, he didn't say, I, I bring you good advice, good advice at what you must do to be right with God, this is good news about what he is going to do, but what he has done as we look back at this, good news about what he has done to make us right with God. Major difference between the two. The Bible's not about good advice, it's about good news. It's a done deal. It's over, it's been accomplished. We have everything we need through Jesus Christ. That's, that's fascinating, that's amazing. This is what separates Christianity from all uh, the other major cults and religions of our world today. And so the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. Notice this good news. If you really understand this good news, this is what's gonna create within you great joy. This is not just small joy. It's not modest joy. It's what kind of joy? It's great joy. This is great joy. And he says, that will be for all people. Just wait, just wait for a minute here. Let's just think about this. 
This is the dawning of indestructible joy. Uh, if you've been with us for any length of time, you know that we define joy. We, you understand what joy is. Joy is uh, as a buoyancy in our life that though life can push you down, it can't keep you down. Because it, you keep coming back up because you find immeasurable pleasure in the uh, biblical principles and the, and the promises that we have through Jesus Christ. And, and this is what he's talking about here. And in fact, in John 16:22, Jesus said, it is a joy that no one can take from you. The dawning of indestructible joy. Amazing. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. That's what we're going to key in on. A Savior. What is a Savior? We all have a Savior. Whether you're a Christian or not, you have a Savior. And so that's what we're going to focus in on. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel, a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, stop there just for a minute. How many have ever been to a concert or you listen to the music so loud at your home that it just brings chills up and down your back? You just go, whoa, that's good. Anybody, show of hands, show of hands, okay. On the way here this morning, I had the music cranking and it about, you know, I, I probably started driving too fast too. The problem with that is I start pressing on the gas and I was like, but, but probably the craziest thing was if people were to drive by me and look at me, they'd think, that guy looks like he's a little crazy. He might be on drugs. But uh, no, actually, I'm just getting enthused over the fact you have that music just kind of pulsating and just driving you, and you get a sense and a hint of who Christ is and what he's doing. And, and, and that's what's happening here. These guys, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, I, I can only imagine what it's going to be like in heaven with all the choirs that will send chills up and down our back and we will just be drawn into this amazing experience of worship that we won't want it to ever end. That's what's happening to them right here. And, and it says, glory to God in the highest. There's no bigger wow in our lives than this. This is like, wow, unbelievable. But not just wow, but there's a, there's a really a big mm, satisfaction in this. And on earth, peace. There's the satisfaction. Peace among those whom he is pleased. It's really talking about grace, and it's talking about how is he pleased with us? He's pleased with us through Jesus Christ. We have his favor. That's the idea here. And so what he's saying here in this text is that this is the greatest wonder of the universe, the arrival of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, if you can read this and feel nothing, then you are, um, you are desperate for the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to the glories of Christ uh, and give you a new taste of this indestructible joy. Um, this is the word of the Lord to us this morning. So, wonderful text, absolutely wonderful text. Now, let's unpack these notes. Everyone has a Savior, and let me give you the first fill in the blank. A Savior is someone or something that delivers us from a terrible plight. Does that sound like a good definition? A savior is someone or something that delivers us or rescues us or saves us from a terrible plight. Most people would agree that there's something fundamentally wrong with the world. Would you guys all agree that there's something fundamentally wrong with the world? If you don't think there is, 
then you haven't watched the news lately. I look forward to the day when we can turn on the news and the news reporter says, hey, there's really no bad news that happened today. Let's just tell you all the good things that have happened today. And by the way, that will never happen this side of eternity or this side of Jesus coming to set up his kingdom on this planet Earth. But uh, it would be absolutely wonderful if that was the case, but we know that it's not, and most people would agree that there is something fundamentally wrong with the world. Where most would disagree is what or who will deliver, save, or rescue us from this terrible plight. If you were to ask most people, people would say things like, well, we need more education, we need better politics, we need more self-help, or which is a multi-billion dollar industry in itself, or, or we need more social justice or psychological counseling, everybody needs a good counselor. And I would not disagree with any of those things, but I don't think any of those really get to the root of our issue. That's why as Christians, we believe that all human problems are ultimately symptoms. So all of our human problems are symptoms and our sin that separates us from God is the cause. That's the cause. Verse 11 of our text, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Jesus came to rescue us from a, a or this terrible plight that we find ourselves in. John 10.10, 10, theme verse here at Desert Breeze, not the first part of it, second part of that verse, but the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. That's, that's evident. It's all around us. But Jesus said, I have come that you might have what? Life and have it to what? Not just a quantity a quantity of life, but a quality of life, a different kind of life, fullness of life, fullness of life. Key verse here at Desert Breeze. We want people to experience the fullness of life that comes as a byproduct of a life that's fully devoted to Jesus Christ. And so we believe that's the answer to our dilemma, to our problems. He came to rescue us. All of those other things that I mentioned there are certainly good things. They're they're things that God has given to us, but they're not, they don't get to the root issue. There's a much deeper issue. Next point on your notes, we have such an insatiable desire for a savior that if it's not Christ, it will be someone or something else. <clears throat> Exodus 23, how many are familiar with the Ten Commandments and how many are familiar with the very first of the top ten list? You guys know what the f- number one, the first of the top ten list is? Anybody? You shall have no other gods before me. And you'll notice that he does not, so you shall have no other gods before me. He does not give you a third option. You're either going to serve the one true living God, or by default, you will have another God. He didn't say, you'll have this God, or you'll pick another God, or you might not even have a God. He doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. We were created to live for one God. God, the true and living God, and if we don't live for him, we will live for another God. Now, you might have been brought here by some family and friends. You were drugged here. You didn't really want to come here, but they said, hey, uh, we'll get you a free coffee, and you can hang out with us, and so you go, okay, I'll take that. I'll I'll do that, and so you came because you could get some free coffee, and you may think that, yeah, you know, I don't really believe in God. Yeah, but you might not believe in God, but let me tell you this. You do have a God. Everyone has a savior. You cannot exist without some kind of a savior. And it it might not be the true and living God, but it will be a savior. That's just part of how we've been wired up, part of proof of why we've been created in the image of God to have God at the center of our lives. Everyone lives for something. Everyone lives for something. You're living for something. You can't exist unless you're living for something or someone. Whatever that something is becomes the savior of your soul. Now, it's why we make such a, a, so much here in our culture 
in every culture, really. Uh, we make so much of rock stars and movie stars and athletic stars and even political stars, believe it or not. It's also why there is such a broad appeal to uh, superhero kind of movies or movies that have, have a storyline of sacrificial love overcoming evil to deliver people f- from crisis. If you look at most plot lines, that's really what it is. Sacrificial love, overcoming evil, delivering people from crisis. That's basically the, bo- the gospel message. It all points back to the, to the gospel. It is also why... It also explains why little boys and girls always want to be saviors, and when they grow up, they, you know, uh, so when they grow up, they want, they want to dress up like doctors and lawyers and firefighters and soldiers and police officers, and they dress up like Batman and Spider-Man and Superman. So here's, here's the deal. So we have this insatiable desire for a savior, and if it's not Christ, it will be uh, someone or something else, and so sin is not simply doing bad things. We often think of sin as just a list of doing a lot of really terrible, bad things, but the essence of sin is putting good things in the place of God. So if you don't serve the living God, you will serve another God. And by the way, we violate commandments two through 10 in direct proportion to how we've already violated the first one. Let me just give you a quick illustration, and you've heard me use this illustration before. Desert Breeze has been around for, for quite a while now, and we've had a lot of people that have come and gone, and from time to time in the marketplace, I'll come across uh, someone who has used to attend Desert Breeze, and they'll say, hey, we used to attend Desert Breeze, do you remember me? And my temptation is to say, oh, of course I remember you, but a lot of times I don't. And so why would I be so tempted to want, you know, want to tell them that, yeah, of course I remember you? Why, why would that be such a temptation? And I, I have to be honest, I have actually said that on, on occasion where I've said, yeah, yeah, of course I remember you. I'm asking my wife, it's like, who are these people? Now you need to know my wife has no problem saying, no, I don't know you. I've never seen you before. I don't know what you're talking about. Why are you following us around in the store? So she has no problem with that. She has another list of idols that she has to deal with, and uh, much shorter than my list. But... Uh, but that's, I mean, and so why would I be tempted? Because at that moment, I am forgetting, I'm looking for a sense of uh, security and identity acceptance in what this person has to say about me, because I want to be known as a very friendly, nice pastor, and I want everybody to love me, and so I'm more concerned about what they say about me, what you say about me, than what Christ has already said about me through the cross and through his sacrifice on the cross, and so, so we violate two through ten of the Ten Commandments in direct proportion to how we've already uh, chosen another savior. Does that make sense? You guys tracking with me? That's really important. So all of our, you know, because we could say, hey, stop lying, but the reason why we're lying or cheating or stealing is because we have another savior. We're living for that savior. And that's important to understand. So if you want to root out sin, that's the reason why, you know, just living by biblical principles isn't going to cut it. It's not going to transform your life. You've got to confront the pseudo-saviors of your life with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, uh, like I said, for decades I struggled, struggled, struggled until I began to understand this principle and it was life cha- changing. And as I began to confront those pseudo saviors, it began to change my life. And so what's happening in my life is that I found that I was, I was turning good things into ultimate things. I struggled in my marriage relationship for years. My wife was a, was a pseudo savior to me. I was looking to get from her what I should have been getting from Christ. <clears throat> and I nearly wrecked my marriage. Now, I wish I would have been my wife's pseudo-savior, but <laughs> I couldn't get her to do that. Um, if, if, if you know what I mean, 
I really wanted her to make me her pseudo-savior, but uh, she wasn't going to have nothing to do with that whatsoever. She was way too smart. And, uh, but she made our kids her pseudo-savior. She tended to choose her, our kids and not make me that. But I tended to make her, and then I, I made my kids, and then I made my job, and uh, I, I did that time and time again. I began to see that I, I'm taking a good thing, and these are all good things, marriage, kids, job, all these things, and I turn them into ultimate things in my life. Here's the next point on your notes. Pseudo-saviors are anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than Christ, anything you seek to give you what only Christ can give you. So oftentimes sin can be a legitimate need met in an illegitimate way. We're seeking to have needs met, but we're, we're going outside of what God says and, and, and in different places to, to meet a need that he wants to meet in our lives. And uh, notice pseudo-saviors are anything that absorbs our hearts. So, so it's really things that dominate. When you think of heart, the, the word in, uh, in the Bible is used some 900 times with heart. And so the heart is your, your mind, your thoughts, your emotions, your will. But it's much deeper than that. It's actually your treasure. It's what you treasure in life. It's what's most important to you. And so your treasure is where you find your greatest pleasure, and it will tend to dominate your thoughts, stir your deepest emotions, and it moves you to action. In fact, it's where you spend your time and your money effortlessly. It's all part of that. Habakkuk 1.11, it says, the Lord is speaking. He's here, he's speaking of the Chaldeans, and I quote Habakkuk 1.11, whose own might is their God. He's saying that their might, nothing wrong with might, the problem is, is that has, it's a good thing that's become an ultimate thing in their life. Their sense of security and strength and power is in their own might. Jeremiah 9.23-24 are verses that we memorized as a family when my kids were small. And it goes like this, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the strong man boast of his strength or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of, of this, that he knows God. And by the way, that's what we boast in in our culture today when, we, when we're around people. Oh, man, man, do you know how much money he makes? Wow, look at what he drives. Look at their home. Oh, that's amazing. So we tend to boast in, in brains, brawn, bucks, those are the big things we boast. He says, that's nothing. If you're going to boast, boast about God. Romans 125, it, it really talks, gets to the root of this whole idea of pseudo-saviors, idolatry. It says, what we typically do is we exchange the truth of God for a lie, and we worship and serve created things more than uh, the creator. So it's really about worship. I, I loved uh, the uh, Scott did a great job last weekend talking about worship, and really, we, we all worship. We're all worshipers, and it's what we're worshiping. And what we do is we exchange the truth of God for a lie. We think, and what that means is that we think that he's holding out on us or we're not gonna find our deepest satisfaction in him, so we're gonna find it somewhere in creation as opposed to the creator. That's what we do. We exchange the truth of God for a lie. That's what Adam and Eve did. They doubted uh, God's uh, goodness towards them, and so that's when we begin to pursue sin, something in creation. We begin to make much of that as opposed to God. And it creates these problems. We exchange the truth of God for a lie and we worship and serve. So we give our lives. Remember, you're going to have a Savior. It's not the living God. It will be another Savior. And uh, we exchange the truth of God for a lie and we worship and serve created things more than the Creator. So a counterfeit Savior can be anything. It can be money, romance, career, physical fitness, beauty, intelligence, education. It can be a moral record social cause, political party, religious beliefs. It's making a good thing, as I said, it's a good thing into an ultimate thing. 
It's taking a want, nothing wrong with wants, and turning it into a need. It's taking desires and making them demands. Partly what created the problems within my marriage relationship. Because I, used to, you know, I would demand my wife, you need to affirm me more, you need, and we'd, I'd give her a list of things that she needed to do. I was a delight to live with, I'm sure, you know, during that time. And it wasn't until I began to understand that it was really, truly a counterfeit, counterfeit God. Uh, she was a counterfeit God. She was a pseudo-savior for me. And I was, I was, when I was empty emotionally, I thought it was her job to fill me up. You're here to make me happy. It's messed up. It's contrary to what the Bible teaches. And... Um, and so as you look at your life, you know, and so you really look at your emotions, this is where I was able to uncover it is that typically increased anxiety, if you look at your life and you have a lot of anxiety, it's because you have a collapsing uh, pseudo-savior. Your pseudo-savior is being threatened in some way. If you have bitterness in your life, and by the way, there's a lot of bitterness in our culture today. I see it even among Christians. You have bitterness in your life. It's because you have a blocked pseudo-savior. Something that you couldn't live without has been blocked in your life. You're ticked off at those people or whoever that is or how you were raised or whatever it might be. That becomes a pseudo-savior when you go around with bitterness somehow thinking that you can't live without that or somehow God can't redeem it or restore it in some way in your own life that somehow it's beyond it's, it's beyond the work of God's grace, his redeeming and restoring grace. And then, of course, despair is evidence. When we have despair in our lives, it's evidence that we have a lost pseudo-savior. See, when you lose a good thing, you're sad. I, I, a number of years ago, and I've, I've seen this happen a few times. I remember a gal who was stood up at the altar. The guy didn't show. That's heartbreaking. What was interesting about this gal that I I saw is that she was sad, but she was not in despair because this guy was not her pseudo-savior. She was able to move on with her life. And uh, so when you lose a good thing, you're sad, but when you lose an ultimate thing, you want to kill yourself because you can't live without it. It's proof that that you're in the arms of a pseudo-savior. How many are familiar with the movie, It's a Wonderful Life? Show of hands. Okay. How many, how many have seen the movie? Maybe I, I ought to ask, how many have never seen the movie It's a Wonderful Life? Anybody? Anybody? Okay. You, you, you guys were a little bit, you didn't want to raise your hand. He's like, that is, by the way, that is so anti-American that you didn't watch that. <laughs> I'm kidding you. That's a joke. It's actually, it's actually worth watching. It's really a good movie. How many enjoy all the Christmas movies around this time of the year? You guys kind of, how many overdose on Christmas movies? Yeah, okay. It's a lot of fun. Uh, we watched The Family Man the other night. It was a, it's really a fun movie. How many are familiar with Family Man? Okay. Okay, I won't go through all the list here, but, uh, but uh, it's a wonderful life. It's a, it's a great movie. Um, there's this great scene that comes right at the very beginning of the movie. Clarence, the angel second class, is about to get this assignment to go out and help this guy who's in trouble. The superior says, you've got to go out and help this guy, George Bailey, and Clarence says, what is it? Is he sick? And I love the response that he gets. No, it's worse than that. He's discouraged. So he's saying, no, it's, it's worse than just being sick. He's discouraged. He's saying, hey, physical ailment doesn't come close to being discouraged. And actually, it's actually more than discouragement. It's actually despair. George Bailey's in despair. 
George Bailey, played by Jimmy Stewart, who lives in Bedford Falls, ever since he was a little boy, dreamed of traveling the world. You guys remember this? Remember that? He's just like, he can't, he wants to get out of this little podunk town. I'm going to travel the world. I'm going to get my education. I'm going to travel the world. And so as George moves into adulthood, that dream is blocked because his dad dies and George must stay in this podunk town and run the family business. Anybody know what the family business is? It's a savings and loan. Yeah, savings and loan. And so, so he kind of shifts from this one pseudo-savior, traveling the world, to this other kind of pseudo-savior, savings and loan. And it's evidence of pseudo-savior to him because of how his response. So he encounters very difficult times when his irresponsible uncle that works for him loses a very large deposit. That part of the movie always frustrates me. It's like, this knucklehead. You, I want to reach into this in there and choke him. It's like, what? But... Uh, so his irresponsible uncle works for him, loses a very large deposit, uh, and the savings and loan is about to go bankrupt, and George may go to prison. George is so depressed, and he's standing on a bridge ready to possibly commit suicide, throw himself off, on, on, off this bridge. It's a cold, wintry night, blistering night, and he's depressed, and he wishes he was never born. And you guys remember the angel... Uh, throws himself into the water, George saves him, and they get into this discussion, and the angel grants George his wish that he was never born. And what's interesting about the movie is then George has an opportunity to see how life would have been without him. And Bedford Falls becomes Pottersville, run by the tyrant old man Potter, who uses and abuses the people in the town for personal success and financial gain, and the town becomes a cesspool, a cesspool of iniquity. Pretty fascinating story. And there's this scene in the movie towards the end of the movie where after George sees all of this, how life would have been without him. Now, now think about this. Think about if you could have this opportunity to see what your life would have been without you. Maybe getting a glimpse into eternity a bit of the impact that your life has had. George Bailey goes from despair to indestructible delight because, because, I think it's a picture of the gospel, because of his new eternal perspective based on the providential, loving, wise control of God. And he's willing to go to prison then. It's like, who cares? I love my kids, I love my wife, I love everybody. If you have to take me to prison, it's no big deal. Totally different perspective. Really fascinating. I... I I can't help it. Some of you still struggle with some despair and you're distraught and you're disillusioned by how things have gone in your life. And if I could somehow, and I need to tell you that there is an eternal purpose. There was a purpose behind the suffering that you've gone through. And you might not be able to really understand it from this, on this side of eternity, but, but there will be a time when you walk in and you'll go, why was I so distraught? Why was I in such despair? Why, why did I struggle so much with that? Because God, God, you are, you are, you are in every way perfect in love, infinite in wisdom, and unlimited in your power, and you have been orchestrating all of this for your glory and my good. Oh, my goodness, why, why, why was I in such despair? I think it's, that's part of what the Bible talks about, wisdom. That's, uh, the whole book, there's a whole section of Scripture, it's the wisdom literature, and wisdom is seeing and responding to life from God's perspective. Listen, he is for you, he's not against you. And the enemy will do everything he can to try to get you to believe otherwise. 
He wants you to be in despair. He wants you to be discouraged about life. He wants you to throw the towel in. That's what George was doing. He's going to throw the towel in. I quit. It's over. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, it's wonderful movies like that. And then you take it back to the scripture and you even see that much more clearly, the providential hand of God. And there's a scene in the movie at the very end, all the people, all the town rallies around him. They bring the money. They bail him out. And then his brother says this. He's a war hero, comes back to town, and he says, to my brother George Bailey, the richest man in town. I love it. Do you have any idea how wealthy you are? This is the good news of great joy. Not not just modest joy or small joy. This is great joy. Great joy. This is amazing. I know. And if you're going through... If you're going through the ringer right now, I know it's hard to see that, but I'm telling you from one that that has seen both sides of it, hang in there. Don't quit. Don't stop. Keep looking to him. Continue to pray. God, show me. Reveal to me what you're up to, what you're wanting to do. Let me walk by faith, not by sight. Let me bring honor and glory to your name regardless of what goes down in my life. Now, what we've got to do is we've got to uncover our, uh, because it really begins to reveal a lot of our, our... our uh, excessive anxiety and bitterness and, um, and despair, depression, is due to pseudo-saviors. And so David Pallison has formulated some questions to help us uncover our pseudo-saviors. So let's walk through these. And I want you to just kind of prayerfully, you need to know what your pseudo-saviors are. I, I've got a whole list. I've got a whole list of pseudo-saviors. You guys, you guys have heard me share about my pseudo-saviors. My wife has a list. I know her list better than I know my list. Isn't that crazy? I can point out all of hers to her. And uh, she's more gracious than I. Because we tend to be, you know, other-centered, and or not other-centered in a good way, but kind of we want to blame shift and put things off on everybody else. But really look at your own life. Where, where are you in this list? What am I most afraid of? What do I long for most passionately? What do you get most excited about? I mean, here's, here's something very convicting. I'll just, I open up my heart to you regularly here. I don't have any problem doing that. But uh, I was most passionate about, there was a season in the church's life when my, my happiness, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Let me work down. So where do, I, where do I run for comfort? Where do I run for comfort? What do I complain about the most? When I would li- listen to my complaints, it's telling me what's most important to me. What angers me the most? What makes me happiest? So let me go back to what I was going to say. So the thing that would make me happiest is when the numbers were up in the church, both uh, numerically and financially. And the Lord convicted me years ago. I said, wait, 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 wait. I died for you. I gave my life for you. Your That's not the scoreboard for you. The scoreboard for you is me and what I've done for you. I love you. And and it's really helped me, and I still have this tendency, is to compare myself with, you know, other churches. And when I, in this church with other churches, and so when I feel, uh, when I uh, am around uh, bigger churches, I feel inferior. When I'm around smaller churches, I feel superior. And I shouldn't have those feelings, but it's based on my, my he's, my pseudo savior is numbers in the church and my success and all of that. And, and so God, God set me free and continues to set me free from that. I did the same thing with my kids. My kids are doing well, I'm doing well. My kids aren't doing so well, I'm not doing so well. And then I couldn't respond to them appropriately because they were my pseudo savior. 
I became controlling and manipulative as opposed to, wait, wait, wait. It's about, it's my, you're my savior. Now, out of that completeness, now I can respond to my kids not doing so well. I can speak truth and love to them and do it in an appropriate balance. It's much healthier that way. How do I explain myself to other people? I mean, I was a firefighter. I mean, hey, I'm a firefighter. Talk about egocentric. Talk about, you know, it's just, or I'm a pastor, or I'm, how do, you, how do you explain yourself to other people? What has caused me to be angry with God? This is a good one. If you've been here for very long, you know that there, have, there are people that used to hang with us that have defected from the faith, and when you sit down and talk with them, this is what they would say. What good is that Christian life? I did all these things, and this is what I get? What is it that you got? Obviously, you didn't get what you should have got because you're angry at the real God because he won't give you your pseudo-God? See, they're more upset. See, they miss the real God, not realizing that he is better by far than anything that he could ever give to you, regardless of what goes down in your life. If you understand what you have in God, that's way beyond anything in creation. But something in creation was more important, and you were coming to God as a means to an end, and now somehow that hasn't worked out for you. You're flipping him off, and you're doing your own thing. It's called idolatry. And that's why you... That's the reason why you can look at people's lives and when are they really serving God? When everything is going well and when things aren't going so well, then they're not serving God anymore. It's like, why? What's going on? I mean, I could give you a whole list of names of people that I thought, oh my goodness, don't you see the gospel? It's beyond all of that. But that's, that's how we uncover that. What has caused me to be angry with God? What do I brag about? I mean, I like bragging about my kids and grandkids, but then I have to kind of check my heart and say, wait, 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 wait. What do I want to have more than anything else? Who do I sacrifice the most for in life? I had somebody in the first service came up to me and asked me, says, what does that mean, sacrifice? We all sacrifice. I know people that sacrifice to go to Starbucks every day. That sounds crazy, but they're sacrificing because that's that's like five bucks, 10 bucks, whatever you're spending there. You're not gonna be able to have that money to spend elsewhere, so you're sacrificing the elsewhere that it would go to so that you can have the Starbucks. And there's nothing wrong with that. If you've budgeted, it's part of your plan, and everything between you and God is cool in doing that. But you sacrifice, we all sacrifice. We sacrifice when we sit in front of the TV, the TV for hours every evening. You're sacrificing maybe time alone with God or family time or whatever it might be. So what do you sacrifice for? What do I sacrifice the most for in my life. If I could change one thing in my life, what would it be? Whose approval am I seeking? You know, I could not be a pastor. I couldn't lead this church if I was seeking your approval over and above God's approval. Same thing is true with you. If you seek my approval over God's approval or your family's approval, what comfort do I treasure the most? See, it's not that George Bailey loved being a world traveler or loved having a successful business, the savings alone too much, but that he loved Christ too little. It's a, really a matter of disordered loves. And, and, and in talking about this, we're not saying stop loving your family, stop loving your kids, stop loving your job. No, 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 no. Start loving Christ more than all of those things. You have disordered loves. You're trying to get from those things that ultimately what Christ should be giving to you, and when you get from him what you need to be getting, then you can respond to life appropriately. Otherwise, you're, 
you're totally dependent upon your, your pseudo, your pseudo God, your pseudo savior. Pseudo saviors can't be removed, only replaced. And so, how do we work through that? Here's the next point on your notes. Pseudo-saviors, let's talk about these pseudo-saviors. Pseudo-saviors, and I gave you a great cross-reference. This is Old Testament, Jeremiah 17, five through eight. He makes this contrast between uh, pseudo-saviors and the real savior, and he says, cursed is the man who trusts in man, pseudo-savior. And he describes it, he's like a shrub in the desert, versus blessed is the man who trusts in the real savior, the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water, deep root system, so there's stability, no fear of heat, leaves remain green, regardless of what's going on, and not anxious in drought, literally is what it says, not anxious in drought. So pseudo-saviors are, here's your next fill in the blank, terribly unforgiving when you fail them. Terribly unforgiving when you fail them. If you don't live for Jesus, you'll live for something else, and if you live for money, career, family, morality, physical fitness, or beauty, and don't do well, it will punish you your whole life. This is from a a great book. You've heard me probably mention this before. It's uh, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller. Let me read to you a story here from this book. A young woman named Mary was an accomplished musician who once attended my church. For many years, she had battled mental illness and had checked in and out of psychiatric institutions. She gave me permission as her pastor to speak to her therapist so my pastoral guidance to her could be well informed. Mary virtually worships her parents' approval of her, her counselor told me, and they always wanted her to be a world-class artist. She is quite good, but she's never reached the top of her profession, and she cannot live with the idea that she has disappointed her parents. Medications, that's the end of quote there from uh, her therapist, medications helped to manage her depression, but they could not get to the root of it. Her problem was a false belief driven by an idol, this pseudo-savior. She told herself, if I cannot be a well-known violinist, I have let down my parents and my life is a failure. By the way, we don't usually say those uh, things consciously, it's usually subconscious messages within our lives, only revealed through our, what dominates our thoughts, stir the deepest emotions in our life and how we kind of conduct our lives and how we direct our lives, the things that we spend our time and money on effortlessly. She was distressed and guilty enough to die. When Mary began to believe the gospel, that she was saved by grace, not by musicianship, and that though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord shall take me in, Psalm 27.10, she began to get relief from her idolatrous need for her parents' approval. In time, her depression and anxiety began to lift, and she was able to reenter her life and musical career. Now, pseudo-saviors are terribly unforgiving when you fail them, and you may be sitting out there and saying, yeah, okay, got that. You may think that Christianity is perfect for people who have had unsuccessful lives. I've heard people say that. It's like, yeah, but that's for all you losers. I'm winning in life. What if I don't fail in, in my money or career or family or physical fitness or beauty? Even the most successful, whatever, 
family, career, money, physical fitness, beauty, even the most successful cannot give you the acceptance, security, and significance the creator and the sustainer of the heavens and the earth can give you. Look at this quote, it's on your notes, Augustine. If there is a God who created you, then the deepest chambers of your soul simply cannot be filled up by anything less. Another story. This is also in Counterfeit Gods, but I like it better in this book. This is also by Tim Keller, The Reason for God, Belief in an Age of Skepticism. And uh, listen to what he says here. A life not centered on God leads to emptiness. Building our lives on anything besides God not only hurts us if we don't get the desires of our hearts, but also if we do. Few of us get all of our wildest dreams fulfilled in life, and therefore, it is easy to live in the illusion that if you were as successful, wealthy, popular, or beautiful as you wished, you'd finally be happy and at peace. That just isn't so. In a village voice column, Cynthia Heimel thought back when all the people she knew in New York City before they became famous movie stars. One worked behind the makeup counter at Macy's, one worked selling tickets at movie theaters and so on. When they became successful, every one of them became more angry, manic, unhappy, and unstable than they had been when they were working hard to get to the top. Why? Heimel writes, the giant thing that they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to fill them with ha-ha happiness, it happened, and the next day they woke up and they were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. Now, now this is what drives... uh, So there's this void, vacuum inside of us that only can be filled with God. So if I look to money to try to fill that, I will never have enough money to satisfy me. This is what creates this obsessiveness. Have you ever ever seen people that they would stockpile so much money that there's no way in 10 lifetimes that they could ever spend it all? But why would they be so obsessed? Because they can't ever get enough to fill the void that only God can fill. I see that in beauty in our culture today with a lot of young gals and even guys who struggle with their body image. And, they, and it drives this OCD, this obsessiveness, this bulimia, this anorexia. See, that's all driven because there's this standard that they're trying to reach and this, this void that they're trying to fill cannot be filled in something with creation. Now, it, now when you look at your OCD, everybody has some form of OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder kind of thing. We, we do things too much. You know, even if you wash your hands too much, it's good to wash your hands, but when you're washing your hands like Jack Nicholson in that movie, as good as it gets, I mean, you guys know what I'm talking about there? Or he doesn't want to step on the cracks, or he goes to a restaurant where he takes his own plastic silverware and unpackages it. That's weird. And that can be driven by a legitimate fear or phobia, but that's turned into an OCD. There's an obsessiveness. He's trying to meet a need. He doesn't know how to trust God in that. See, that's part of that. that, So when we see this obsessiveness, it's trying to meet that that deep need that only Christ can meet. Now, let's, let's finish with this. Jesus is the only Savior. He's the only Savior that can meet those deepest needs. Now, so what do we need to do? How do we get over those things that get a hold of our hearts? C.S. Lewis said this. You and I have a need of the strongest spell that can be found 
to wake us from the evil enchantment of worldliness. So how do we get over these things? We're almost finished. We need the strongest spell that can be found to wake us up from the evil enchantment of worldliness. What's going to help me to pull my heart off of those things that I love more than Jesus? Augustine, St. Augustine put it this way, the key to life change is not the acts of the will, I'll be trying harder, but the loves of the heart. As I said, last week we talked about worship, so if you want to change your life, you change what you worship. And you've got to change you know, the object of your worship. And what we need is a robust Christian life. You must have an affection for Christ and a sense of his love on your heart that exceeds your affection and love for anything else. Uh, Thomas Chalmers, dead theologian, put it this way. It's the expulsive power of a new affection. It's an affection for Christ, and of course you nurture that through worship because you're worshiping something. So when you find yourself worshiping, when I'm dominated by what people think about me, you know, because I'm a people pleaser, I've got to say, wait a minute, they can't meet my need like you can meet my need. You have accepted me, and you love me, and you care for me, and so I have to, I have to redirect my worship and make God the object of my worship as opposed to the people, and you can do the same thing with money or body image or any number of things, and that's what we have to do. And so we've got to begin to see that Christ is more beautiful to us. He has to become more beautiful to us than, than our pseudo-saviors. I love the story. I, 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 I'm just going to tell you a little bit of the story. It's Luke 15, 11 through 32. How many are familiar with the story of the prodigal sons? Wonderful story. You need to know the context because the, the Pharisees are murmuring at Jesus because look at Jesus. He can't be the Savior. He's a friend of sinners. And so Jesus responds with three rapid-fire stories. The first one is the lost sheep, second one, lost coin. The last one are, is really about the lost sons. We tend to say that the, the younger one's the only one lost, but actually both of the sons are lost. It's the prodigal sons. And what's fascinating about this story is that we find ourselves in the story. We are either the younger brother or the elder brother in the story because we all, by default, try to save ourselves. We try to save ourselves as the younger brother trying to break all the rules God's holding out on me. I don't need to live according to his, his rules. I think I can do it on my own. Or we try to do it by keeping all the rules. That's the elder brother. So the younger brother's way of being his own savior is uh, self-discovery. I'll find it out there. I'll discover it on my own. The other one is uh, more moral conformity. It's religion. That's where I fe- fell prey to for years. And it's, uh, it's really quite fascinating. Both of the brothers were using the father as a means to an end. And that's typically what we do. So all of us tend to go between one or the other, or we can kind of go back and forth a little bit. I, I've seen people do that too. They go from elder brother to younger brother to younger brother. And oftentimes, by the way, you need to know this too, is that oftentimes when you describe Christianity to people, they think they're thinking more in lines of the elder brother. They're thinking, oh, moral conformity. I gotta get my act together. But that couldn't be further from the truth. That's not Christianity. And and so we see people swinging from one extreme to the other. But this is what I love about the story. So the younger brother asked for his inheritance. And by the way, by him asking for his inheritance, uh, you didn't get your inheritance until dad died. So in essence, it was saying, I wish you were dead. I mean, that's a major, an, an assault, an insult to the father. But the father gives him his inheritance. And you guys know what he does. He goes out and spends it on wild living and prostitutes. And he winds up where? There's a famine that hits the land. He's in a pig pen. How ironic for a little Jewish guy 
in a pig pen, eating slop. And it says that while he's doing this, he comes to his senses. And I oftentimes will imagine well-meaning Christians coming along and seeing someone in a pig pen, pulling them out and washing them down, and come on, you can do better than this, only for that person to return to the pig pen because they have yet to come to their senses. And so you don't ever give people money indiscriminately. You're really wanting to do that in conjunction with what God's doing in their life, and so you have to be extremely careful when you do that. But he came to his senses, and he starts kind of going through in his mind, thinking, you know what? My dad's hired hands are taken better care of than I. What was I thinking? So he kind of goes through and develops this little speech, kind of writes out this speech, and this is what I love about the story. Verse 20, chapter 15 of the story. And while, and while he was still a long way off, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and had compassion on him and ran to him, and literally the Greek says, and smothered him with kisses. Oh my goodness. It brings tears to my eyes every time I read that. First of all, in an honor culture, it was very undignified for a daddy to run, girding the loins of his robe up and running to his son. Do you see the passion that this dad has for his son? And so the son begins to recite his little speech. He can't even get through the speech. His dad cuts him off in mid-sentence, says, hey, hey, my son's back, my son's back. Put a robe on his back, ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, slaughter the fattened calf. We're celebrating. And they throw a party unlike they've ever had before. Do you hear what Jesus is saying to these Pharisees? You guys are complaining that I'm a friend of sinners? Don't you know the Father's heart towards sinners? It's amazing. It's captivating. It's overwhelming. You see, it was not, it was not the repentance that brought the Father's love. It was the Father's love that brought the repentance. Don't ever, don't ever forget that. It's when you see the Father's love, you will run to him because guess what? He's already running to you. He's running to you. Here's the fill in the blank for you. He eternally forgives you when you fail him. And then here's the next one. I gotta talk about the elder brother. That's more me. I never did the younger brother stuff. I did the elder brother stuff. And I always imagine the, the younger brother coming home and the elder brother sees the younger brother, before the father sees him, and he runs out there, and what would he do? He would beat the living daylights out of him because that's what elder brothers do. They beat younger brothers up. How dare you do this to the family, you little piece of whatever? I mean, it's just like, oh. And, and I did that. I did that. I was holier than thou. I was self-righteous. See, I had left the father without leaving the farm. It was moral conformity. And yet there's something that happens here. So he hears the party, the, uh, the elder brother's work, and he hears the party going on, and he goes, what's that all about? And they say, hey, your brother, your younger brother come, has come home, and they're celebrating, and he's like, what? I'm ticked off. So dad goes out there, and this is what's amazing about the story. Dad goes out there and doesn't lecture him or command him. He didn't say, hey, listen, in this household, we are forgiving, and you're gonna get your butt in there right now and forgive your younger brother. He doesn't do that. He entreats him. That's literally what it says. He entreats him. 
And as the, as the son says, Dad, you never even butchered a goat for me. And this is what the dad says. He says this. And he said to him, son, and the word son there is really interesting. It's not a degrading thing like, why don't you grow up? He's knowing, no, he's saying, no, you're my son. Don't you understand? You're my son. How great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. We are his sons and daughters. He goes, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. You are always with me. I will never leave you or forsake you. Don't you understand what you have in me? Boy, that, that, when I began to understand that, it was so hard-hitting for me. It was amazing. It was life-changing. It was transforming. I love what C.S. Lewis says. He who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. He who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. I love the old hymn. The things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. God, thank you. What an amazing story. And God, I thank you for uh, convicting us this morning, our struggle with uh, pseudo-saviors, and that every one of us uh, struggles with this. Um, we all have this insatiable desire for a savior, and we tend to replace you with anything and everything else. And uh, God, you came to set us free of these pseudo-saviors. And God, help us to be reminded that pseudo-saviors are terribly unforgiving when we fail them and, and ultimately unfulfilling, um, even when we satisfy them. And uh, but Jesus is the only Savior that eternally forgives us when we fail him and infinitely fulfills us when we get him. Thank you. Thank you, God, for that. If you're here this morning, maybe you've never made a confession of faith, I would encourage you to do that. How do you do it? You just acknowledge your sin that separates you from God. And your primary sin is just having anything and everything else as your Savior as opposed to him. You believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, you confess him as Savior and just turn your life over to him. Do that by prayer through faith in him. God, thank you. I pray for those this morning that need to make that decision. I pray for all of us that need to renew that commitment to you. Lord, let us live our lives for you and for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.